TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. And welcome back to Overnight America. I'm your host, Ryan Recker. And I love when we have the opportunity to talk to authors who chronicle moments in history. And this one, there's a lot of fascination around. Joining us now is the author of The Death of Hitler's War Machine, Samuel W. Mitchum. Thanks for coming on to KMOX. Well, thank you for having me. Let's see. One of the quotes from the Wall Street Journal, prolific chronicler of World War II, I'm curious, why do you think so many Americans have a fascination with World War II? There's there's a lot of moments in American history. Why is it that we always seem to uh, go back to World War II when it comes to our fascination? Well, uh, they're looked upon as the greatest generation, um, and it was the last war we really won. It uh, pretty much fought it the way we needed to. Uh, we haven't done a lot of that in recent history. And uh, to most people, it was a clear-cut struggle between good and evil. And um, that's not always been the case in recent years, at least in a lot of people's opinion. Right. So a lot of um, the research that went into this, it sounds like you had the opportunity to see some of these uh, German wartime papers, something that hasn't been seen all that often. What were you able to learn from going back and reading those papers? Well, um, you you learn a lot from the enemy. Um, you know, Gerd von Rudstedt, uh often said that uh, you learn more from studying the losing side than the winning side of war. And I found that to be true. Um, to me, um, it was almost two wars. The uh, Battle of the Bulge had been fought. Uh, Germany no longer had a chance, but many Germans refused to recognize that fact, especially in Hitler's uh, inner circle. Um, in the... Uh, Eastern Front, you had fierce resistance. Uh, the Russians tried to employ terror, and uh, um, I think it cost them a lot of uh, lives. Uh, in the Western Front, though, the, uh, the German soldier had a reasonable expectation of going back home if he surrendered. He had to spend a little time in prison, and he was pretty sure his... Uh, home would not be uh, burned, his wife and daughters wouldn't be raped. Um, 
and uh, especially after Remagen, uh, the bridge fell. Uh, German, that was a symbol to the Germans. Uh, the Rhine had been breached, and although it wasn't militarily significant, it was uh, psychologically devastating. And that led to the, the uh, great battle on the Western Front, the Battle of the Ruhr Pocket. Uh, mm. The Americans captured over uh, uh, 300,000 Germans in that battle. Uh, they only lost 1,700 casualties. Most of them were wounded and came back later. Um, mm. That was one of the most lopsided victories in our history. Mm. Uh, in the East, uh, the opposite was true. Uh, the Germans uh, uh, fought like crazy. I, I document one of the battles when uh, Walter Nehring, he had previously commanded the Africa Corps before he was wounded, uh, he had the uh, 24th Panzer Corps. Um, he was, uh, you know, there are usually about three corps in an army for those who aren't familiar with military terms. Um, he was surrounded by seven Russian armies. So he was outnumbered uh, a good uh, uh, 15 to 1. He formed a, uh, a fortified goose egg type pocket. And move that pocket all the way across East Prussia under constant attack, and got back to German lines. Uh, yeah. I thought it was the most uh, uh, tactically brilliant battle in uh, the history of the war. Um, and you um, like that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. When when you start to to go back and and to look at these different moments and you chronicle these things, and I know you've wrote other books, uh, history books, going back and looking at moments in uh, history in World War II. I, I wonder how much of this to you seemed personal. Did you have any family members that fought in World War II? Oh, all sorts in both uh, Europe and uh, the Pacific. My uh, uh, father uh, fought in the Pacific and uh <laughs> Was once asked, "Was my daddy a racist?" Well, yes, he was. Uh, he he uh, got along fine with black people, but he hated the Japanese till the day he mm. died. And uh, I'm glad you weren't there uh, the day uh, his number one son, myself, uh, showed up in his brand new Honda. Oh your, boy! Your ears, your ears would have bled. Well, that's um, the thing. It's when they fought in that, and my grandpa was like that too. Uh, I never had a chance to meet my grandpa, but it's a lot of those things that, like, when he came back, my grandma always said he would never again ever set foot in Japan. But when he was traveling overseas, he was there uh, if, during World War II, and you know, he brought some things back even. But he said, "I'd never again ever go there." And you hear those sediments because uh, they were the enemy. They, the, the things that were going on in the war crimes that were being committed, the things that they witnessed firsthand, that's stuff that really has a deep psychological impact on you that has a lifetime and lasting effect. Yeah, it certainly did uh, with my um, father and uh, I had an uncle who was uh, a bit of a war hero in the Pacific. Uh, he came home and uh, got his dress uniform, put on the medals just so, uh, made it perfect, put it in a duffel bag, and threw it off the Golden Gate Bridge. Wow. Um, that's kind of the way he felt about it. And um, he, he never discussed the war. Dad didn't much. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, that was that's the difference of... in 
Go ahead. Yeah, that's got to be tough when you have such a fascination in documentation of history and you have family members that uh, just naturally, most people that have served in a foreign war just do not like to talk about it. They like to read about it and understand things that they were involved in. I had uh, friends of different groups I've been a part of that served in World War II, and they said in their later years they love to go back and read the books but they still to this day would not talk about the things that they witnessed over there. So for you, for someone that's documenting history, um, that's gotta be a little bit tough when you have, uh, you know, someone that lived history in your own family and you understand that that's just going to be the way it is. You're not going to be able to discuss it with them. Yeah. Uh, I did get a little disgusted. My uncle Morris died and I re- at the age of 88. Uh, and I read in his obituary that he commanded a landing craft flotilla in the Battle of Iwo Jima. And wow. that's the first I'd ever heard of it. <laughs> he Isn't that never something? said a word. Yeah. Now, the yeah. Germans, it was just the opposite in Germany. Um, the way the, the subsequent generations, after the World War II generation, dealt with things like the Holocaust and the Eastern Front and uh, was to wall it off. The younger generation would say that was daddy's war, that was granddaddy's war, it had nothing to do with me. And if you started talking about it, they would they'd be polite, but they would leave, they would excuse themselves and leave the room and almost invariably. Which leaves you with some old World War Two veterans who don't get to tell their war stories to younger people. Then mm. then I show up as a young man in in Germany, and I want to talk about uh, their experiences. I want to hear what, what happened. Yeah, and uh, they tell you anything you wanted to know, and uh, you, done things you didn't. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. I'd love to talk to you more. Do you, and I know that you said you would stick with us this hour. So, do you mind holding on after the break? We can keep talking about this. Sure, I'd be glad to. Samuel W. Mitchum is the author in his latest book called The Death of Hitler's War Machine, The Final Destruction of the Wehrmacht. We're going to continue our conversation with them right after the break on Overnight America KMOX. St. Louis's traffic station, KMOX. I, like many other people, fascinated when it comes to World War II history. I love to learn about it. And joining us now is a military historian. He's wrote... Many books, I think over 20 now, uh, if I keep in count correctly. His uh, name is Samuel W. Mitchum. You can find his new book out now called The Death of Hitler's War Machine. Thank you for sticking around and hanging out with us this hour on Overnight America. No, no problem. No problem. How many books have you written? Uh, I think I might be underselling you. Um, about 40. Wow, that's pretty good. Actually, uh, that's a very fascinating. That's a lot of history to document. Do you feel that it is a duty of yours, uh, or is it more of an interest? Oh, it's. Uh, I'm not sure I'd answer that question. It's just something I do. Uh, I come from a. Oh, my mother was a newspaper editor for 47 years. My brother was a, a sports editor for. 20-odd years. Um, my first degree was in journalism. Writing is just something I do and yeah. always has been. I've always been interested in military history. Uh, ever since I was a little kid, the very first books I've got, i still got them right here. Uh, yeah. It was a four-volume set of R.E. Lee, the uh, uh, Douglas Southall Freeman's first Pulitzer Prize-winning edition. 
given to me mm. by a cousin who was old enough to be called uncle. And mm. as a kid, I read them, but I didn't understand them, but I wanted to. And um, later I graduated from the Army School for Generals, Commanded General Staff College, uh, qualified me through the rank of Major General. And I do understand it now, and I try to explain it. And uh, I've got a passion for history and always have, and I'll try to... Uh, Try to make interesting books. To me, history, you know, I'm a retired university professor, but uh, yeah, history should be, uh, I read my friend Stephen Ambrose, who wrote The Band of Brothers. History should be aimed at the general public. Uh, too many professors write articles that are only read by other professors. Um, that, to me, is wasted effort. Uh, mm. Mm. Interesting. A lot of thought. Uh, a lot of academia would uh, throw, throw stones at me for saying that. <laughs> no, I think I you're doing what's that. right. And, and, you know, and that's the thing. If you're enjoying it, you like what you do, and it just comes to you, you're, you're doing it in a way that's important. And your book is out now. It just came out, The Death of Hitler's War Machine, your latest. And I want to make sure I'm pronouncing this. Is it the Wehrmacht, or how do you pronounce that properly? Wehrmacht. Wehrmacht. Okay. And that's Wehrmacht. the, and I had to look this up. The Unified Armed Forces of Nazi Germany. I wanted to one, you know, I wondered their mindset, how different that is from other armed forces in other countries. Well, um, the army still maintains some degree of corporate independence. Germany is traditionally a land power, whereas America, we don't have uh, that dominant tradition. We're also Navy and uh, certainly Air Force. Um, the uh, uh, Hitler, um, the only people he worried about after about 1934 was the army, and he brought it under uh, his control and uh, Nazi control. Uh, and in doing so, he did a lot of damage. He he replaced some uh, of the most brilliant generals in the war. You know, even uh, Little Hart, the uh, great. Uh, uh, British historian who uh, is given partial credit for uh, founding the uh, Blitzkrieg. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said the German generals were better than any uh, other generals anywhere in the world during World War II. And I have to agree with that. They had uh, excellent training. Um, but Hitler uh, needed uh, mediocrities uh, uh, like uh, Wilhelm Keitel, who he promoted from uh, uh, division commander of a relatively uh, uh, junior-ranking officer, mm-hmm. all the way to field marshal and uh, commander-in-chief of the Wehrmacht. Uh, I commanded the armed forces. And uh, Hitler himself said that Keitel had the brains of a cinema usher. And I'm sure, not sure he wasn't insulting the cinema ushers, but um, mm-hmm. Keitel could be counted upon to obey the Fuhrer's orders without question. Of course, that's what got him hanged at Nuremberg. But uh, uh, Hitler wanted yes-men, and um, uh, he made sure, pretty sure he got them. Uh, there were some, hmm. some exceptions. Uh, remember General Sachin, I'm surprised he lived. Uh, uh, late in the war, he entered Fuhrer headquarters, and uh, 
uh, he still he continued to wear his sword, and you were not allowed to bring a weapon into the Fuhrer's presence, but he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Hitler had by then had it decreed you could only salute using the, the Nazi salute, the so-called Hitler salute. Mm-hmm. Um, Sokol saluted him with a traditional army salute, mm-hmm. and uh, he did not remove his monocle from his eye when he did it, which was a sign of disrespect, almost mm-hmm. contempt, a triple insult before he opened his mouth. <laughs> and uh, Hitler um, told him he would uh, have to take orders from the Gauleiter, the roughly the equivalent of the Nazi governor of the province. And uh, hmm. Sokol said, I will not do it. <laughs> and uh, uh, Hitler reiterated the order, and Sokol said, I will not take an order from a Gauleiter. Huh. And um, uh, Hitler sort of collapsed back in his chair and um, told him he didn't have to. And huh. uh, everybody was shocked. And uh, yeah. That is uh, not how I thought it would play out. (laughs) (laughs) No, nobody else did either. Uh, You could have heard a pin drop in fair headquarters after that. But, you know, were uh, the uh, were the monocles common then? Because the uh, the only reason I say that is because when there are different comedies that are brought up about World War II in Hitler, it always seems like there's someone with a monocle around them. Yeah, they were very common back in those days. Yeah, um, it was just the way things were. Uh, kind of like uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, Mini skirts and go-go boots back in the seventies. You don't see that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you don't see that much. Yeah, no, th- it's the, interesting. The suit is gone. <laughs> you know, you, you start to learn about the personality of some of these the more you read about them in, in the different papers. And in, uh, are there any people that we have a misconception about that have been depicted, um, like the, what you just mentioned about Adolf Hitler? I would not have guessed that his interaction would have ended that way with someone being insubordinate or, you know, disrespectful in my mind. I, th- I definitely thought that was turning a different way. Do you find that often that there might be people that we have misconceptions about famous uh, Nazis? Um, not really. Uh, most of them are pretty accurately portrayed. Uh, Hitler, I'm not sure is Hitler. Uh, it depended on what day you came, and I think that was because of his uh, drug abuse. Hmm. Um, you know, sometimes as a historian, you, you look out. There was a a British colonel who went into the Thero bunker. It was nine months after Berlin was captured. He got an invitation from the Russian. Actually, looked for it. Went in there, and the Russians didn't have any respect for history. What they did uh, in the Blundstrasse uh, there. The German uh, equivalent of the Pentagon, Fehrerbacher, they they take the filing cabinets, dump the files on the floor, and ship the filing cabinets back to Russia. Hmm. And he looked on the floor and he saw that well, it appeared to be a journal, and it, it was the journal of Dr. Kivo Morel, uh, Hitler's personal physician. Hmm. So he got to reading it, and he put it under his arm and walked out with it. And nobody stopped him. And uh, I got a hold of a copy of it uh, many, many years later. And um, um, 
I got a cousin that was a medical doctor, and he was older. I took it to him. He could not identify the drugs. He said, Sandy, uh, a lot of these drugs haven't been manufactured since the late 40s and early 50s. Hmm. I don't know what they are. Wow. This was about 1980. But like I say, sometimes you luck out. I had a fishing buddy who had a daughter who owned her own medical corporation. She was a medical doctor and had uh, several other doctors working for her. And uh, he said, I'll get it. I'll get them translated for you. And he gave it to his daughter who would do anything for her daddy. And uh, um, they, she sent some of her staff to the um, LSU medical school and they found out what these were. And their conclusions were that Hitler had a vitamin toxicity. He would have died as a result of taking too many vitamins. Huh. Within a year or two, they estimated, if he hadn't committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was addicted to amphetamines, you know, which is speed. Hmm. And uh, what blew me away is the active ingredient in his eye drops was cocaine. <laughs> and he took up to 19 applications per day. 19 drops of cocaine to the eye a day? <laughs> 19 applications, uh, three or four drops <laughs> per application. So th- this guy was a, med- a walking medical time Wow. That's, yeah. you know, we, we talk about Keith Richards and how in the world is he still alive? I mean, it, as far as we know, he's not using cocaine eye drops uh, daily. Wow. Yeah. Uh, do you mind holding on after the break? I'd love to talk more about this. Samuel W. Mitchum, his book is out now. It just came out, The Death of Hitler's War Machine. It's one you're going to have to check out. We'll continue with him right after the break on Overnight America KMOX. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. News Radio 1120 KMOX. The voice of the Cardinals. He is a military historian and author of the new book called The Death of Hitler's War Machine, Samuel W. Mitchum. You can find him in his book online now, which is out. Uh, Thanks for staying with us this hour. I'm finding this extremely fascinating, learning a lot about World War II. Well, I appreciate that. I wanted to um, get your thoughts on the way, like, modern television shows go back and look at World War II history. So if you were to hop onto the History Channel. They've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, Nazi technology and, you know, depending on what channel you're watching, they'll talk about the potential of if Hitler had a time machine, the bell or whatever it is. So what do you think about that way of documenting World War II history? Well, 
I've appeared on the History Channel a few times, but uh, uh, if you're asking about TV shows, uh, I'm the wrong person to ask. I don't watch yeah. much TV. Uh, I got you. about writing books. Uh, don't watch much TV, and uh, uh, I, I, I found a lot of mistakes on some of the programs I have watched. Um, yeah. That makes sense. But, I, uh, I wonder, too... Yeah. Um, there, there was this one series that I was really intrigued by, and it's got to be at least 10 years old now. So the, it was a documentary series where there were investigators that were trying to find um, people that committed war crimes that evaded capture. So essentially they had an open invitation to be arrested at any given time. So they're trying to find old uh, you know, people that were involved, uh, Nazis that were working at certain camps or may have uh, been a part of war, uh, you know, real atrocious, uh, atrocious uh, war crimes and things, and trying to hold them accountable, even if they're 90 years old, still holding them accountable and things like that. I'm wondering when you hear about the way Adolf Hitler had control over the people around him and things, and the way that they he, they just wanted him to just, you know, blindly do whatever he wants. I'm curious if you know about any of those instances where they find someone in their 90s and hold them accountable. Do you look at that as um, a necessary step for closure, or do you look at that with a little bit of sympathy and say, you know, they were probably doing what they were told, and maybe they were forced into doing things they didn't want to do? Well, my opinion, and I know uh, some people will probably throw stones at me for this, but uh, why bother? Uh, uh, Oh, oh, people over 90, many of them, their mental capacity has uh, deteriorated. They're not really the same person. Some of them uh, have uh, dementia, Alzheimer's. Uh, mm -hmm. They will face the ultimate judge. I'm a Christian. I believe that God will judge them, and it's going to be a lot harsher than anything we could do if uh, if they haven't repented. Some of them have, I guess. Uh, yeah. Corey Ted Boone was a concentration camp victim, and uh, she was at a reception. And uh, she uh, uh, ran into one of the guards in a reception line uh, who guarded her at the concentration camp. And uh, she wrote about it in her, one of her books, uh, um, she was just, you know, struggling with herself. She had uh, become a Christian, but she uh, uh, was ready to lash out at this fellow. And he, uh, uh, he said that uh, he told her uh, that um, he had heard she was in a concentration camp and uh, said, in my youth, I was a guarded one. He didn't recognize her, of course. And uh, he uh, talked about his guilt and how horrible he was. But, uh, um, he uh, hoped that uh, God would forgive him and uh, spoke in a, great, a very remorseful way. And uh, she was able to put it aside, and then and they kind of became friendly, uh -huh. um, which is... An exception rather than the rule. Most of these people were uh, uh, disappeared after the war, or were captured, or uh, uh, um, and they were uh, 
You know, uh, there was a lady who wrote a book uh, about the banality of evil. She was a Jewish uh, lady. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, she caught it in a year. But now it's pretty much accepted. Uh, uh, these people were pretty bland. They weren't geniuses by any means. Uh, they were uh, rather ordinary, but uh, they got caught up in this Nazi thing. And uh, uh, kind of became monsters. Wow. And... Um, Oh, I was reading about one of them in the SS. Um, many of these uh, guards, especially, were uh, um, kids who had been caught doing something wrong, sleeping on guard duty, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were given a choice: uh, you know, join the SS or face the consequences, because that was a capital offense. And uh, they would join the SS, and they put them in the Amstead group and the, uh, the the murder squads. And uh, uh, you know they uh, they kind of became monsters. Uh, wow. There were a lot of different motivations. Uh, I joke about Tito Einka, who was commandant of Dachau and later commandant of all concentration camps. Uh, <laughs> He was the youngest of 12 children. I think that's one of the reasons he was so mean. But uh, mm. uh, he commanded the uh, 3rd SS Panzer Division in Russia and was a true believer in all this. And um, he was very um, anti-Christian. He, um, and uh, if one of the uh, SS types uh, uh, broke with their parents... Um, because they adopted atheism, he would invite them into his home when their lead came and uh, be their family because they were so badly mistreated by the parents. Um, hmm. you know, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on in Nazi Germany in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, um, just recently there was an author I had on the show that uh, wrote about the assassination plot to kill Hitler in 1944, and mm-hmm. afterwards the uh, failed assassination plot where Hitler found out who was involved and essentially took the parents, so the 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 man and then his, their wives or whatever, and separated from the kids. They, the the parents were were killed, and the kids were sent to essentially their own camp, I guess. And she said that after the war ended and these kids were released from these camps and they went back into general society, there was different host homes that brought them in now that they were orphans. And they said that they were looked at as traitors after the war um, because their parents tried to assassinate, assassinate Hitler. So I'm wondering, even though you look at the history of World War II, the, what happened immediately after when the Nazis, the fall of the Nazis, the death of Hitler, and then eventually it's over. World War II is over. The mindset of the people that lived there through all of this. And I was kind of surprised to learn that a lot of them were still holding on to and were still very loyal to the Nazi party and things even after it was dissolved. Well, it was especially true in places like Berlin and the East because the Russians uh, treated them horribly. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Less so in the West. I co-authored a book with Theodor Friedrich von Stauffenberg. He was um, the, the cousin of the man that put the bomb under Hitler's table, Colonel Count Klaus von Stauffenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of got to know the Stauffenberg family a little bit. And um, um, 
and they were fairly well left alone. Um, uh, the mother was, uh, they had an alibi set up, and it fit Nazi ideology, which is a woman uh, in a subordinate position. She doesn't know anything about her hus- what her husband is doing, uh, 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 home, church, and bedroom. That was the, the big three mm-hmm. parts of her life. And uh, uh, the Schaffenberg, she knew exactly what was going on, but... Uh, uh, she pretended she didn't, so they put her in a camp, a uh, prison, not a concentration camp, a regular prison for criminals. And she got almost enough to eat, and the, the uh, warden made sure that she was all right. But at the uh, end of the war, she got out. Uh, her kids were all in an orphanage in, in eastern Germany. Uh, and uh, they... Uh, uh, she stole a car. Uh, I understand she hotwired and yeah. um, went through the American zone, uh, through the Russian zone, and uh, all the way to the orphanage. Uh, of course, she was taking a great chance because a lot of women were being attacked and raped and murdered at that time. And, you know, how many countesses do you know who can uh, siphon gas from a gas tank? She did that and uh, uh, walked into the orphanage, got her children, put them in the car, and took them back home, Mm -hmm. uh, all the way through Russian and American lines. And uh, um, she died um, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, uh, surrounded by uh, three generations of loved ones. Uh, Mm. uh, They never, uh, her. uh, one of her sons, I guess he's still in the Reichstag, the German Congress. Um, so there's a variety of uh, um, experiences there. Right. Uh, mostly the Germans tried to put it behind them. Um, yeah. Especially well, in the East. Yeah, well, maybe um, after the break, I'm always curious of how history is taught, uh, especially things like this. It, uh, wondering if the way that we look at it here in the United States is different than the way they look at it in Germany. Maybe we can talk about that after the break, if you don't mind holding on. Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, so one more break with author Samuel W. Mitchum. You can find his book. It's brand new and out. One of his many great books, uh, The Death of Hitler's War Machine, is the newest one. This is Overnight America, KMOX. Now back to Overnight America on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. And for one more segment, it is someone that I'm... Uh, learning about and learning about World War II history in 40 plus books that he's uh, written a lot of uh, attention to World War II. It is um, military historian Samuel W. Mitchum and his latest book that's out now, The Death of Hitler's War Machine. I really got to tell you, I've had a great time talking to you this hour. Thanks for spending so much time with us. Oh, I enjoyed it. When you go back and look at some of these documents and you talk to people that have experienced history and taught to them in different ways, we know that there are certain restrictions, for example, in Germany, um, you know, like here in the United States, we have freedom of speech and you think about, um, you know, the way that we depict things in media, but just in general, things that we're allowed to say where the government can't punish us. 
it's interesting to think, um, you know, in Germany, when it comes to World War II and swastikas and Hitler and things like that, there's a certain amount of, hey, we don't do that here. We don't talk about that, but they still teach the history. of. So I'm curious, um, how do you think World War II is handled and talked about and taught in Germany compared to how we handle it historically here in the United States? Well, Germany basically um, omits it. Uh, they try not to deal with that. Uh, they turn their back on their own history. Like some people would like, you know, his, most people don't know what history is. History is not the study of the past. History is a study of the past with interpretation. And um, they put a certain spin on it. And, um, and you know, I guess that's natural. I mean, if you go to Mexico, the Mexican-American War is going to be covered much differently in Mexico City than it's going to be covered in Texas, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it basically depends on the author, the teacher, and uh, um, you know, yeah. uh, it's highly varied. Uh, right now, there's a trend in history, uh, uh, socio-history, um, uh, I like the, the other historian, I've forgotten his name, but he called for a modest call uh, for bugles and trumpets. It was largely about battles, and that's the way I handle it, which is different from yeah. Harvard and Yale and some of the other places. Um, I get that. One thing, uh, yeah. one oh, thing no, I uh, want to mention, uh, if you don't mind what we're talking about the book, is uh, the innovation that you found in Germany. There was a lot of it. They kind of had a gallows humor. I mean, uh, there was a joke around Germany. If the American Air Force continues to bomb, uh, they're going to have to start bringing their own targets. And uh, they also believed in the, uh, you know, many a truth is told in jest. They said, um, um, it's easier to believe in final victory than to run around Germany without your head. Hmm. And they they were highly innovative. I had a friend who was a little girl in East Prussia when the Russians broke through, and the temperature was zero degrees Fahrenheit. Well, she didn't have any shoes. She was barefooted. And um, they had to get away from the Russians. Uh, you know, as adults, uh, you and I can make our shoes last a little longer. We repair them. His feet grow so fast, that's not an option. Mm-hmm. So her mother took her and dipped her feet in cow manure and let it harden, did it again, let that harden, and again and again and again. And she literally had cow patty shoes. Wow. And she, she walked all the way across East Prussia, the Danzig Carter, Pomerania, and half of Brandenburg and reached British lines and never had the slightest uh, health problem because of it. Um it was like times. Say, a lot of a lot of innovations. I knew another woman who uh, wanted a new dress, but there were no textiles. Everything went to the army, and um, there was no cloth. But she noticed there were plenty of Nazi flags, so she went to the gauleiter and asked, "I need a big party flag to decorate my home." Oh yes, ma'am, I gave her one. She went to the cross lighter. I need a big party flag to decorate my home. She went to the Veer Priest. She went to six different agencies and got six Nazi flags. Actually hung one of them outside her home and cut up the other five and made herself a beautiful red dress. She was the only one in her town who had a new dress all year. <laughs> and uh, 
People would ask, where, where did you get the material? Of course, he would lie and say, oh, I um, I ordered this uh, material uh, before the war. Sure. And I uh, didn't like it when it arrived, so I put it in my trunk, and I was tr- cleaning out my attic, and I came across it. And I said, it really didn't look so bad. <laughs> so she made herself a dress. It's amazing stories like that. Yeah. The the innovation of it all. And just one more time, if people are looking for your book, uh, where's a good place to find the death of Hitler's war machine? Oh, let's say Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, regular history, of course. Uh, Any bookstore will either have it or be able to order it for you. Uh, That's great. And people, it it just came out. And if you found any of the last hour fascinating, you have to go look up the the book, The Death of Hitler's War Machine. You can look it up online, get an idea of what it looks like. Military historian Samuel W. Mitchum, I had so much fun with you here tonight talking about history. Thank you for coming on and spending so much time with us. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I appreciate you having me out. The book, again, you can find on Amazon and other places, local shops, The Death of Hitler's War Machine. Go give it a look if you enjoy history. He joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. Wow. Hitler's cocaine eye drops. This is Overnight America KMOX. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 